The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hello and welcome uh, everybody to our second Shape ID uh, webinar. My name is Jane Olmeyer and I'm director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, our research institute in the arts and humanities at Trinity College in Dublin. I'm also chair of the Irish Research Council, uh, which is the funding agency here in Ireland that funds excellent basic frontier research across all disciplines and over the past few years has been doing all it can to promote interdisciplinarity. Indeed, Shape ID arose in part from uh, a seed uh, grant from the Irish Research Council. Thirdly, I am the PI of uh, Shape ID, and I won't say a word or two about it. It is funded by the European Commission under the Horizon 2020 Framework Programme to address the challenge of integrating the arts, humanities and social sciences in interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary research. The project's led by uh, the Trinity Long Room Hub with partners ETH Zurich, Isanova in Rome, the University of Edinburgh, the Institute of Literary Research of the Polish Academy of Sciences, and Dr. Jack, and Dr. Jack Spappen. And we'll hear more from Jack in a moment. We've recently published the results of Work Package 2, which included a systematic review of academic and policy literature and a survey with interdisciplinary researchers. We've also completed three of six learning case workshops with researchers, funders, policymakers, and other stakeholders. There was one in Dublin, one in Edinburgh, uh, and one in Turin. But sadly, uh, we've had to postpone the last three uh, because of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic crisis. Uh, uh, these will take place in the autumn and they'll take place virtually. Uh, and we're hoping to develop webinars actually linked to some of these workshops. So I'll come back to those uh, uh, later. Our first webinar on the 14th of May looked at interdisciplinarity in times of crisis and why perspectives from the arts, humanities and sciences are so important. So do listen back to that. If you get a chance, it's on our uh, website. Anyway, to business. The title of our webinar today, Pathways to Interdisciplinary and Transdisciplinary Research for the Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences, Bridging the Research Policy Gap. For this uh, webinar, we wanted to bring together a panel to respond to one of the uh, four recommendations in our recently published policy brief. Um, uh, that uh, there, there are, uh, as I say, four key recommendations. I just want to say a very quick word about each of the recommendations, partly because we're using this webinar to launch that policy brief, and we'll make sure that it's available in the chat function if anybody hasn't seen it already and would like to. So we make four key recommendations. The first is to encourage greater arts and social science participation uh, in funding programs. We really need funders and policymakers to engage more substantively with the AHSS communities across the spectrum of disciplines. That's very important. It's about across the full spectrum of disciplines. Um, uh, uh, we need to identify 
with uh, interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary experts when defining, designing the calls, but also uh, in evaluating uh, the calls. Now, as I say, this is the recommendation we're going to be focusing on in this webinar, but there are three others. So the second is uh, uh, recommend, we recommend that funding programs should allow for additional resources to enable inter and transdisciplinary uh, research development, for instance, to fund additional meetings, uh, uh, to uh, provide facilitators and to build time or to allow for time to build mutual trust and understanding. Um, doing real work across disciplines um, uh, uh, really does uh, 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 require additional time and that has to be factored in. The third recommendation, um, uh, we recommend that policymakers should support and incentivize universities to build capacity in inter and transdisciplinary uh, research by taking steps to de-risk inter and transdisciplinary career paths and integrate uh, uh, inter and transdisciplinary research into education and training at an early stage. Some are trying, but there's a long, long way to go. Uh, the fourth recommendation, we argue that a validated online toolkit of inter and transdisciplinary research methods, materials and examples of best practice is urgently needed uh, to provide a common point of reference for European uh, stakeholders. We hope that this toolkit might take some of the pain out of doing a, a, a trans and interdisciplinarity uh, and uh, really help uh, facilitate it. As I said a moment ago, today we want to focus on the first recommendation, uh, which is around increasing AHSS participation in funding uh, programme design and evaluation. Um, now, we're hugely conscious that similar recommendations have been made many times before with very limited uh, impact. So what are the challenges of implementing this and how can policymakers, researchers and universities make progress on this front and real progress? Uh, is this a challenge specific to improving pathways to interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary research or is it a more general problem with the interface of uh, arts, humanities, social science researchers um, uh, that in other words, are we really not, you know, are we not talking to each other? Is it the interface uh, that's not working? Now, today we have a wonderful panel who are really going to allow us to drill down and I'm going to introduce them, uh, them in a moment. But before I do that, I really want to uh, uh, welcome our audience uh, and introduce you because you can help us uh, shape thinking about these key issues in real time. We're gearing up for Horizon Europe and this is clearly something that the European Commission is determined to get right this time. So we really would value uh, your contributions. Uh, well over 100 people um, have registered, which is fantastic. You're coming from all over Europe, Scandinavia, Central and Eastern Europe, Southern Europe, uh, as well as here uh, in Ireland and in Western uh, Europe. So thank you very much for joining us uh, in the Zoom room. We're also live streaming uh, on Facebook and we're recording the webinar so we can share it with those who couldn't be with us uh, uh, live. Each of our panelists will speak for nine minutes and we're very strict about that because we want to leave plenty of time for uh, questions from the audience. 
I'd invite you to submit your questions using the Q&A uh, button at the bottom of your screen. And then I'll go through the questions. I'll ask as many as time allows for. And if you're, uh, I may call on some of uh, uh, our colleagues in the, in the Zoom room as well. Um, we will be sharing links and references through the chat function and in invite you to introduce yourself and share interesting resources or comments. Also, when you ask a question, it's lovely to know who you are and where you are. And we'll be sure to share all of this information at the end. All right then, over to our fantastic panelists. Um, I'm going to introduce them in the order in which they're going to speak. So first up, we have Jennifer Edmund, who's joining us from Trinity, where she's Professor of Digital Humanities and co-director of the Trinity Centre for Digital Humanities. Jennifer is also president of the board of directors of DARIA, which as I'm sure you're aware is the pan-European research infrastructure uh, 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 for uh, uh, the arts and humanities, for digital humanities. Jack Spappen joins us uh, from Amsterdam. Jack is a member of the uh, Shape ID Consortium and it's been a pleasure to work with Jack over the last uh, 18 months. He's the Senior Policy Advisor at the Royal Netherlands Academy of Arts and Sciences with expertise in areas including societal impact evaluation, research and innovation policy, uh, and responsible research and innovation and scientific advice. So Jack, you're very welcome. It's great to have you with us. And last but not least, Mary Doyle. Mary Doyle is currently a Public Policy Fellow in the Trinity Long Room Hub. Uh, Mary is a highly experienced policymaker in the Irish government, having worked as Deputy Secretary General in the Department of Education and Skills, where she had responsibility for higher education policy, uh, funding and legislation, uh, uh, and later for further education as well. Uh, Mary has also worked in the Department of the Taoiseach, or of the Prime Minister, for many years. So Mary really understands the importance of getting this right, and Mary, you're very, very welcome uh, today as well. So without further ado, if I could invite Jennifer Edmund to take the microphone. Thanks so much, Jane. Um, when I was first asked to make this presentation, my first response was, this is great. This is a project I really believe in, and partly out of completely selfish reasons. I am an interdisciplinary scholar. I work in the space. It's very firmly at the intersection between culture and technology. And my approach is very applied. I like to build infrastructure for humanists. And at the same time, I actually felt a little bit of a hesitation because I, I felt like I'd been giving this presentation for 10 years. So the question in my mind was, well, why is it I feel like we are continually having to make the case for SSH integration? You know, haven't we done it yet? I wrote a paper in 2013. Didn't that solve it? Well, actually, it didn't. So I kept thinking, okay, so, so what, you know, before I have a rant, what might be missing? And the first thing I thought of was, well, you know, do we need evidence? Do we need manifestos? Well, of course, we all know, and in fact, the, the Shape ID deliverable makes it very clear how much evidence we have of the incredible value of SSH in research and of integration in research as well. And we do have the manifestos. We have work going back to the 90s about the value. So it's not that we need more work and maybe we just need to popularize this work. But of course, in the last 10 years, we've also seen 
all sorts of books, the kinds that CEOs are meant to pick up in airports about sense and sensibility spelled with a C and the fuzzy and the techie and sense making, all these, these, these um, ways in which the, the message about the value of these disciplines is starting to come out. And of course, we're seeing that, that message echoed back as well. In fact, you get industry CEOs like Stuart Butterfield from Slack and Flickr, um, who himself studied philosophy, or people like Mitchell Baker, who said, without the humanities, we are intentionally building the next generation of technologists who have not even the framework or the education or vocabulary to think about the relationship of STEM to society or humans or life. Job done, right? You know, but we're still giving this presentation. Um, and so maybe I thought, okay, I'm still trying to be positive here. What we really need is just the frameworks. Maybe we just don't know how. But of course, um, the organizations such as AISH, organizations such as LERU, um, the Net for Society, um, even the commission themselves have been reviewing this practice for many years. And of course, the Shape ID toolkit, I think, is going to be a major addition to this corpus. But it's not that we haven't thought about these issues before. And so this is when I warned the Shape ID team that I would be giving a little bit of a rant. Because at this point, I think we have to recognize that even though you can ask us to provide more evidence, and even though you can say the arts and humanities and the social sciences are sounding a little defensive, and I get really defensive when you start to tell me I'm sounding defensive, it is time for us to recognize, I think, that the real problem that we face is not that we don't know how and we don't know the reason to do this, is that there is a systemic and pervasive bias towards the STEM subjects that is built into our funding programs, that's built into our policies, that's built even into the language we use. Um, so I want to start with a, a kind of a claim that came from, uh, I'm borrowing from, from Deb Verhoeven, who gives this stirring keynote at the 2015 Digital Humanities Conference, where she said, we are not the problem, you are. So let's imagine this different world where the, the disciplines really are treated as equal. Well, I think one of the first things we'll see, and Jane has already mentioned this in her introductory comments, is that funding will be even. Um, in the country where I live and work, Ireland, um, a large majority of the research funding is coming through the organization called Science Foundation Ireland, who is a staunchly STEM funding organization. Um, yes, they work in outreach, and yes, they have some uh, claim towards interdisciplinary research, but nowhere near as strong as the Irish Research Council. So where we as arts, humanities, social sciences researchers really have access to funding, that's where the interdisciplinarity is coming in. That needs to be everywhere. And it needs to not just be access to funding, it needs to be access to a voice in that funding. I don't know how many of you out there have had this happen to you, but a call in which there is SSH integration that is being promoted and they say, oh, we want you in as our SSH partner. You can do the communications work package. Ah, makes my blood boil. Because we also need to see as many of these, let's say we want parity. Let's say we need more than parity to make up for lost time. We need technology projects that are led by SSH. And this is something which we discovered in a project that I was running called uh, KPLEX, where one of our key recommendations was that the liberation of having a humanities team lead a technology project that was really aimed to have an impact on how technology was developed, it made a huge difference and doesn't happen enough. But another thing that we hear about when um, the, the, uh, we talk about 
the funding is that, well, perhaps when we have interdisciplinary calls, the lack is that we don't have the researchers who can actually evaluate the funding. And this was actually proposed to me um, by someone from the European Commission. So, well, we just don't have the, the evaluators, so we can't integrate, integrate SSH into these other projects. So we did a bit, of, uh, a bit of research in Trinity College Dublin. Now, this is anecdotal, but I think it speaks volumes for what's happening. We asked our researchers if they'd registered and if they'd been called, and we had 65 researchers respond, of whom 35 had been registered on the European Commission system for experts. Um, and mind you, many of them, including myself, had been registered for a long time. Of this 35, only five had ever been called to evaluate interdisciplinary projects. And of course, I think the, the, the reason for this is, is perhaps that you could see the commission is looking for what the Germans call a, an, an egg-laying wool milk cow. So this kind of animal that does everything. And unfortunately, many of the areas that are defined in these collaborative pro programs are now quite narrow. And you know, anybody who has that expertise is probably applying or at least knows everyone who's applying. So they would be conflicted. So what I think is really needed now is we have to recognize SSH as an expertise in itself until we get those areas established. We need people who can come in and actually say, well, this is actually a valid methodology. This is actually a valid approach, even if the subject matter isn't something I necessarily work in. And I think that would bring us a long way forward um, towards having this more balanced integration of, of SSH into, um, into the missions, into the interdisciplinary calls, and into the collaborative calls. Now, of course, we can't just point to the, the policymakers and to the funding agencies and say, right, get it done. I think we also need some work from researchers and from some other places in the research in ecosystem. And I suppose one of the things that I would really love to see, and that would happen almost by nature in this fantasy world of mine, where we are starting from the assumption that everything we say about all disciplines being important really is something that we mean, is that we would see the STEM researchers actually becoming our best advocates. We would see the technology researchers coming to us and saying, well, actually, we desperately need a social cultural perspective in these projects. And yes, that's gonna mean the pot of money into my lab might be less. That's going to mean the leadership in the project might actually be complicated for me. There might be um, difficulties and there is a real challenge to the building that epistemic diversity. But I do think actually that we would see that happen if the world was as, as I want to imagine it. And I would also say that would come to the, the way we publish and the way we um, promote research on a wider basis. Um, there have been many, many things that I have published in the past that I've been told were bad social science or not technical enough or far-fetched. And the reason why I received these comments, maybe it's because this was actually just not very good research. It is always possible. But I also think it's because of the, the approach I'm taking, trying to be a literary scholar working in a social area. We need better understanding of that. And of course, that is a comment that points to our own community as well. We can't stand back and say, well, as SSH researchers, we simply want to be integrated and we need that now. We also need research careers and we need people to encompass the collaborative and the individual work, to encompass the basic and the applied. We need them all and we need every researcher to understand them, to experience them, and to validate them. And I think that's something we can do in terms of training and in terms of development. Because if we're going to reach that panacea that the former research commissioner named to us where the most exciting and groundbreaking innovations would happen at the intersection of disciplines, 
that's not going to come from data. That is actually going to come from us, and that's going to come from reimagining our research world. So I hope that maybe we can do a bit of that reimagining together, and I think Shape ID is really helping us to, to both imagine and move toward it. Thank you, Jennifer, for getting us off to such a cracking start. That wonderful, just bristling with great uh, uh, insights and, and, and really, really important points. Um, Jack, can we turn to you, please? I'm going to talk about three things. The first one is the new normal. Second one is I'll give you some breaking news and some results of the Shape ID research. And the third one is the question how evaluation can help further integration of art, humanities and social sciences. So let's start with the new normal. We live in strange days as you all uh, will experience. It's dangerous to have close contact with others but at the same time our governments tell us that we all have to work together to beat the virus. And these days also reveal what is really essential in a healthy society. And they offer solutions that were hard to imagine only a few months ago. Apparently we are flexible enough to switch to a different mode if it's really necessary. In the sector of higher education and research, we managed to very quickly change to a system of distant learning, organizing Zoom meetings and conferences, etc. But the impact of the pand pandemic is of course much wider. And the main question is, is this new normal? What is it? And how long will we have it? And will it be a game changer? I'm optimistic about it. But uh, there are some people who are less optimistic. I'll, I'll try to uh, explain why I'm optimistic. We see uh, research agendas in many fields turning into the direction of the virus and the pandemic, but also to the wider ranging consequences. Of course, it happens in the medical and health research, but it also happens in many other fields to find answers for all the non-medical questions that have come up during this global crisis. Um, in our Dutch Academy, we started to work on an inter and transdisciplinary research agenda. Uh, it's called Post-COVID-19. Um, we see the realms of science and policy and society becoming more and more entangled. And this has a major impact on existing norms and values in all sectors. And more importantly, it has an impact on the practices of policy and research and on learning curves. You could say that we are all participating in a global experiment which takes place in a pressure cooker. Is this new normal good for inter and transdisciplinary research? And especially for the integration, the further integration of art, humanities and social sciences. Clearly the get together of scientific expertise, policy demands and societal unrest and fear has led to an avalanche of events following the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic. And the pace is very fast indeed. In my country, the Netherlands, but also in many other countries, scientists seem to be in the driver's seat. Most governments have been developing behavioral guidelines for the public based on the advice of virologists, at least in the first part of this uh, pandemic. But later, policies are fed by knowledge from other sciences trying to find the balance between public health risks and the socio-economic consequences of so social distancing and other policies. And this is, of course, the domain of art, humanities and social sciences. But we also see other significant changes. Medical researchers all over the world who are trying to find a vaccine publish their research results open and free and in collaboration with the big publishers who are dropping paywalls 
And they work together with Big Pharma in a different way. Big Pharma even says that they will produce a vaccine at cost. Things that were heavily debated before all of a sudden seem possible now. Is this the new normal or will we go back to the old normal as, as soon as we can? In any event, thanks to the COVID-19, we get a sharper look at both the opportunities that now seem to emerge and the difficulties of these multidisciplinary and multi-interest collaborations. And we see conflicting ideas on the science side. We see different policies in different European countries. We see various pressures from civil society. And we realize even more that it is not easy to connect the worlds of research and policy or research and society. I'm going to give you some breaking news, some optimistic breaking news. Yesterday there was a, an article in the Times Higher Education where they published a list of the best young universities, meaning not older than 50 years. And the main conclusion was, was that they are more focused on civic engagement and on social justice, on being relevant for their environment, and not so much on international competition, but on collaboration. And this is not because of the COVID-19, it's a longer development. So there is hope for the future. In our Shape ID research, we found a fast growing attention for inter and transdisciplinary research in the universities, in funding bodies, in governments, and both at the national and, and European level. But we also found that collaboration in inter and transdisciplinary programs does not come naturally. We found no less than 25 factors that hinder the development of inter and transdisciplinary research which means that we are still far away from a productive ecosystem that we need to address all the challenges that come with a pandemic or any other major issue that plays in society today. I cannot go into 25 factors. I will mention just a few. Career risk for researchers, but especially for young researchers. We, we can all read the news that they will be the first victims when there will be budget cuts in the university system. And that's really uh, very damaging for the whole, whole system. Uh, inter transdisciplinary research is still perceived as potentially damaging for researchers' careers, uh, but it's because you have to step out of your comfort zone, which is not easy in uh, departments that are often very traditional. Uh, they say it's more difficult to publish in high impact journals and it's more difficult to get funded. And that's because the reward systems are still primarily geared toward disciplinary indicators and structures. So that is really a big thing that has to be changed. Then the time and space lacking that is needed to develop good inter and transdisciplinary research. And the funny thing is that in our research, we found that it's not so much the integration of art, humanities and social sciences with the STEM fields that was reported as a big problem, but the lack of time to develop good relations and mutual understanding. And this was especially the case when you have to address new issues. And then finally, the capacity building within the universities. I think universities really have to step up and rethink their education and training up to the PhD level and introduce much more uh, knowledge about inter and transdisciplinary collaboration. They used to, they have to use more comprehensive evaluation system that include a broader impact of research and not focus too much on uh, looking backwards, but on looking forward. And they seriously have to spread the knowledge about inter and transdisciplinary collaboration. And as Jane explained in the beginning, we do have uh, results that can help that process. 
And then finally, the question, how can evaluation help arts and humanities integration? And when I talk about evaluation, I now mainly talk about ex-ante evaluation, that is how to assess proposals for inter- and transdisciplinary research. To evaluate after the fact, ex-post evaluation is a different matter and it's much more difficult because we have so many different results coming out of these projects that it's not easy to uh, include it in, in one type of evaluation. Anyways, I think there are four, four things that we have to uh, address uh, and, and change in the evaluation system. The first is maybe the most important. We need to start working with mixed assessment panels and with people who have experience in inter- and transdisciplinary research. So not just put uh, people of different disciplinary background in these panels, but people who really have experience. And we should include stakeholders also. And uh, then the application process. We should uh, turn to a two-step application process, which gives people the opportunity to profit from experienced reviewers. So the first step is a relatively short proposal where you outline what you want to do and, and have a good focus on how you want to collaborate with different disciplines and with different uh, partners from society. And the second would be then a, a larger proposal, but you can profit then from the comments from these experienced research uh, review panels. And then the, the third one is maybe a bit more revolutionary, but put the arts, humanities and social sciences researchers in the driver's seat. There are so many topics that uh, need the input of both the STEM and the arts and humanities and social sciences, but most often it's the STEM fields that are in the driver's seat and not the arts and humanities and social science researchers. So it would be re very refreshing to put them in the, in the driver's seat. And I know that there are experiments here and there, but it should be much more common. And then the final thing is that whatever you do in evaluation, focus more on collaboration instead of on competition. I think that was uh, less than nine minutes. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jack. I'm just scribbling away here because you've got, you know, you've outlined the challenges, but also some very practical solutions. And it'd be very interesting to hear people uh, respond to some of these cracking ideas. Okay, Mary, again, I think you're going to give us some very practical insights here, but look, looking forward to hearing from you. Thanks very much, Jane. Good afternoon, everybody. And thank you for the invitation to speak at this webinar as part of the Shape ID project designed to engage a wider audience in discussions around the integration of arts, humanities and social science in intra and transdisciplinary research. And it's actually very important that there is such a project because in my experience as a policymaker, uh, you have to name something as important, you have to put something into place, you have to do something differently in order to engage the conversation. And that's what the Shape ID project is all about and, uh, and, and is really important in terms of uh, having a focal point or providing a focal point for these discussions. Um, this agenda has always been important, but I would agree with Jack, it has acquired new urgency in recent times, not just because of the global pandemic that we're all in the middle of, but also because of the rapidly changing global environment in which we're living, social, political, physical. So lots of change, lots of implications for society, lots of implications for communities and for individuals, and we do need to start thinking 
uh, differently about how we address those and mobilize stakeholders who perhaps in the past haven't been part of the conversation. So I just wanted to introduce myself briefly. Jane has already done this, but just to say, I graduated in European studies from the University of Limerick in Ireland and joined the Irish Civil Service in the late 1970s. And I worked there until I retired a couple of years ago. So most of my career was spent in our uh, department of the Taoiseach, which is the Prime Minister's department. And that is a key role at the centre in managing the overall uh, system of government. And then laterally in the departments of health, children and education and skills. So I'm particularly interested in the management of complex issues or wicked problems, as they're sometimes called, uh, across government and the role that research and evidence can play in helping to understand and resolve societal challenges. So like Jack, it's in three parts. I'd like to take as my starting point the Shape ID project and specifically the very helpful policy brief on improving pathways, which has been published and Jane has set out, if, uh, referred to the recommendations. I'd then like to make some comments from the policymakers' perspectives, which is a perspective which I think is not often in this conversation. Uh, and I'd like to conclude with some remarks on the importance of having a good architecture in place to initiate and support necessary conversations over the long term. So just looking at the, the policy brief and the SHAPE ID uh, project in itself, it is, and I would agree with uh, both Jennifer and Jack, very timely to reimagine the role of AHSS in the public policy space, particularly in the light of COVID ID, but, um, but also other, other issues which uh, will change very fundamentally, I think, the way in which we live our lives. There was a really interesting blog uh, published on the Irish Humanities Alliance website this week by Professor Daniel Carey entitled, The Humanities and COVID-19 Research. And it makes a compelling case and sets out a rich tapestry of possibilities across the AHSS landscape to contribute to this agenda and to provoke thoughts. But for this to happen, something has to change. There's a famous article back from 1975 written by Professor Stephen Kerr, which is entitled, On the Folly of Rewarding A While Hoping for B, which says that hoping for one behavior while rewarding another uh, is folly. Uh, and it, it, the article really pays attention to the need to design systems and structures which support and reward desired behaviours. And luckily the EU funded Shape ID project is doing precisely that. Uh, so like most of the policymakers I know, I went back to the source documents uh, and I wanted to think in particular about this contribution, specifically in the context of the project. The project is designed to positively influence the shaping of interdisciplinary practices in Europe and nationally. Uh, so trying to think through uh, and use the material which Shape ID produces to change the existing set of arrangements is, I think, the, the common challenge in this space. Jane has, as I say, um, talked about the four policy implications, so I won't repeat that. But I, so I guess the challenge now is to think about how to design and put into action the practical steps needed to develop and deepen the interaction. In my experience, this requires concerted action on the part of a number of actors, specifically academics, policymakers and funders. As these worlds intersect, each needs to understand the world of the other. 
And since the title of my contribution references the policymakers perspective, that's what I'll now focus on. So, since I came to the Long Room Hub in Trinity last year, I've been struck not so much by the differences, but by the similarities which exist between the worlds of policy and the worlds of academia. That might come as a surprise to, to many of you listening today, but I would argue that the challenges facing both worlds have remarkably similar parallels when you think about it at a conceptual level. So in the world of policymaking, the process generally is an iterative one, starting with agenda setting, uh, moving through problem definition, onto policy development, uh, and into policy uh, evaluation. Is that really so different from the world of the academic in identifying a research question, defining it closely, researching the topic, gathering the evidence, evaluating the evidence, reaching conclusions? Is managing complex agendas across government departments and agencies really so different to managing interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary projects and programs? But there are key differences. Policymaking is an inherently messy business. The world of the policymaker is extremely busy, noisy, fractious, contested. Policy is deeply influenced by history and precedent, is inherently political in nature, has multiple voices in the conversation, and is highly iterative. Policymakers uh, operate in a world of competing interests and uncertainty. They also operate in a world which is extremely time-bound, because having the perfect answer is no use whatsoever if it's past the time when your minister or your prime minister is sitting, standing up in a parliament or entering a government meeting. So, um, so the kinds of things I think that would move this agenda on are thinking as the policymaker does when uh, he or she comes to look at a problem. So very briefly, the kinds of things that are on the policymaker's mind are who sets the agenda and that does come to the first question around who is in the room when the issues are being talked about, considered, and solutions and pathways designed. Who's the leader? Where's the lead coming from? Uh, what's capacity? And this goes back to what Jack said, um, thinking about capacity right through uh, the system. How are issues to be resourced? What structure and mechanisms are needed to support a different approach? How is the project to be governed, managed, and evaluated? Um, other issues like communication and culture. So there's a lot of commonality here. I think the smart thing to try to do is to think very strategically about what the, the things that bridge the gap are uh, and, and identify those and work on them. So I don't have time to go into much detail on this, but there's clearly, the, the, in my third part, I wanted to say that developing a stronger architecture is really, really important. And there are three parties in this. Uh, one is the uh, research community itself, particularly the higher education institutions, the government system, uh, the parliament and government departments or ministries, and the research funders. Now, there's lots of excellent material. Lero uh, published a really interesting paper on discipline, interdisciplinarity and the 21st century research intensive university in November 2016. We have recommendations uh, from the uh, European Alliance for Social Sciences and Humanities. We have initiatives like the uh, University's Policy Engagement Network in the UK. Uh, and government departments could also be much more specific about their research priorities. And I want to uh, uh, stress something that Jack stressed, which is training of academics and policy is really, really important. And also greater alignment across the, great, the, the various funders. So in conclusion, 
just to say, um, Shape ID is important in this conversation. It, it's bringing together a whole series of threads. And if people um, can use it very effectively, I think it is a source of a much richer dialogue in the future. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Mary. I love the fact you're so focused and so practical. And I think what you're saying about Ireland obviously I'm hoping resonates with uh, our listeners across uh, Europe, but indeed further afield because I'm delighted to see we have people joining us from Latin America uh, 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 and from India as well as from across Europe. So that's fantastic. And now it's your opportunity to ask questions to the panel. Um, they're already starting to come in and I'm going to take the first question, uh, which is from Joel Graf, who uh, is the Swiss national contact point for Horizon 2020. So Joel, thank you very much for your question, which is um, how can we improve lobbying in order to get more money uh, for inter and transdisciplinary projects with AHSS uh, in the lead? Um, an example would be uh, the cluster two of the upcoming Horizon Europe uh, project on culture, creativity and inclusive society. Uh, so in comparison with all the other clusters, uh, health, energy, transport, ICT, etc., cluster two seems yet again uh, to be getting the least amount of funding. So um, very important uh, question, uh, Joel. And I'm actually going to go maybe to Jennifer to begin with, but I think this is something the all members of the panel uh, might want to come in here because it's very important that you know the money is there to if the aspiration is there but before Jennifer you start I'm always very conscious of something Harold Hartong said at the uh, research and innovation days back in um, I think it was September he said you know is the AHSS community ready to step up and lead because I think this is linked to that but Jennifer over to you um, sure. Yeah, it's, it's a big question. and I think it's an important one. And in fact, um, I had mentioned that I had been in this conversation with uh, Jean-Éric Paquet, and that led to a, a kind of a, a follow on where we were looking to actually say, well, how can we build this voice? Because many of the STEM subjects would have a stronger lobbying presence in Europe than we would have through these, um, through these platforms, these various kind of industry, industry research shared platforms. And of course we don't have that. So I do think that we need better mechanisms. Um, we do have voices like, like Aish uh, working for us, but I think if you start to dig into it, the, the professionalization or the, the access to just making sure people understand what you're doing. I mean, I'd love to hear the um, reactions from the policy side of how um, messages are received. Um, we haven't really developed that language and those mechanisms yet. And I think it's, it, it's, it really is incumbent upon us to find ways and to push for assistance in making sure that we have the same kind of, of access. We want to do it in a productive way. We just don't know how. But we, I think we are ready to step up. We just need a little bit of support in knowing what the productive way is to do that. Thank you very much, Jennifer. Uh, Mary, uh, uh, how are these messages received by policymakers? You can speak from, I'm going to say, bitter experience here, please. Yeah, tell us honestly. <laughs> okay, so, so to answer the question, uh, or to try to help with the conversation here, to just say a few things. The first is I think the community has to take a much more strategic approach to the conversation. Uh, difficult to do, it's a very broad church, I know the AHSS. Um, but um, there needs to be some uh, template or framework put in place which actually uh, interprets the, that, that complex landscape for policymakers and for politicians. Um, 
I can elaborate on that later, but I do think that actually how this, how the AHSS is described and describes itself is a really important thing to consider. The second thing I think uh, I would suggest is to think about is how to make it important. You know, it's a, as I say, it's a really busy, noisy world out there. So if you want to actually influence somebody or get something to do, get somebody to do something different or to fund you or whatever, you actually have to sit down and have a think about how do I uh, construct this message so that it passes over those hurdles and becomes important enough uh, to be thought about. The third thing I, I think is crucial, and again, it's a more strategic approach perhaps, uh, is you have to identify the decision makers. Decision makers, it's not always easy to see who they are. Um, they come uh, from a range of places. Some of them are political, some of them are administrative. Civil society sometimes um, can be very influential in this space. And lastly, um, and Jennifer has alluded to this, some thought needs to be given to how you characterize the leadership of the sector, if that's possible, I don't know. Um, but you know, you need to make it easy for the policymaking world to engage with the AHSS world. And whether that's a very distributed leadership or a very, um, a very uh, obvious one is for you to decide, but you need to put the leadership somewhere. Thanks, Mary. Jack, do you want to come in here? Yes, I, I would like to think, I'm not sure if lobbying is the right word. You can lobby for a, a particular topic and then you will might get some money for a couple of years or so, but it's not, not really going to help. And uh, I think ecosystem is, is the, the best uh, word here. You have to build a longer term relationship with, uh, with the funders and with the policymakers uh, about especially the, the, the larger societal challenges, but it can also happen in, in uh, in smaller uh, changes in, for instance, the educational system or something like that. Uh, I've done research in, in uh, the health sector, primary health care, and it was very clear that uh, those institutes who, who were building a long-term relationship with the, with the ministry and with other uh, organizations in that field had a much better chance of, uh, of getting heard and, and having an influence on development than when you don't have that. So I, I would say that it's very important to think in, in longer term development and not only get uh, some lobby activity and, and get some money for two years or four years and then you have to move to another project. I'm gonna come in here as well because I want to pick up on what Jennifer said about enterprise. I actually think some of the most powerful advocates for true integration of arts, humanities, social sciences are our colleagues in the world of enterprise. We've worked particularly with Intel and I see somebody from Intel's with us today, but also Accenture, you know, who would have thought that you would have seen big, if you want the big corporates actually saying, what we wanna see is, is, is a greater presence of AHSS. And I think harnessing that um, uh, is very, very important. Um, uh, there's a lovely question uh, from Neve McGachern uh, from the University of Limerick, who is also um, the, uh, very involved with the Irish Humanities Alliance. I think she's about to be the next president of it. So, so Neve, I know you're in the Zoom room. Could you ask your own question? And, and, and we'd love to hear from you directly if that's possible. If not, I'll ask it for you. Sure, Th thanks very much, Jane. Can, can you hear me okay? Yeah. 
And thanks very much to everybody. It's such an illuminating and important conversation. Um, I was very interested in the, um, essentially, the opportunity for academics to work in residence within government departments that was launched last year, I think, um, within the Irish government. Um, and, I, and I think it was very valuable and I think it would be very interesting to hear some feedback around that. But I wonder if it would be possible to extend this or is that, should we be lobbying for this to be extended to include AHSS disciplines? I was surprised when I saw it that it didn't actually, because one would think that AHSS disciplines would have a lot to offer in that regard. Um, and if we were to start lobbying for that, I wonder maybe if Mary perhaps uh, would be able to provide some advice or insight into whether that is something that would be helpful because I think really, it, especially um, in a country like Ireland certainly, but, but I think you know, more broadly, it comes down to relationships and trust and people being able to understand each other's environments and how they communicate and how they need information in order to use it. Um, and I think that kind of inhabiting of each other's spaces and breaking down those boundaries and thinking creatively then about how we can invite policymakers back into our university environments. Um, I think that that's something that, that can be very helpful in terms of building up that ecosystem and those relationships. So thank you very much, everybody. Mary, do you want to start? Um, yes, so Neve, thank you for that. <clears throat> and I would completely agree with you. I think, and I said in the paper, I think there are three places where action is required. And then there's action required to connect those three places. And those places are the, uh, in no particular order, the government system, so the policy making system, the academic community uh, and the funders. So I think there, there's, there's, there's work to be done in all of those places individually, but there's also work to be done then in connecting them. Uh, I certainly think that there's huge uh, value uh, in, um, in having a, a cross-pollination, so a civil service going into uh, the academic world and vice versa. Um, but that does, I think, require the building up of the research uh, agenda within the government system. <coughs> Excuse me, which is something that I think is really important. Uh, I think so. A level of preparedness there, a level of preparedness in the academic community, and specifically in AHSS. And I know that Jane and colleagues in the hub are, have, you know, I suppose they've been leaders really in trying to do this. And then there's a role for the funders. I mean, I think, uh, and I think that, you know, we need, as, as Jack says, we need a long term approach here. But if we could make progress in all of those areas, I think that would be great. So the answer to your question is yes. The, the next question is, how do we actually do it? Mm. I don't know, Jack or Jennifer, do you want to come in here as well? No, because I'll, I'll move on then to the next question. Thank you very much, Mary, which is from uh, Arlene Hannemeyer, uh, who is a medical humanist from Canada. So great, I mean, I love the global reach here. Uh, I'm wondering if I can have some practical advice for approaching and involving policy researchers, analysts, makers, as either collaborators or, or co-applicants on the HSS projects in public health and medicine. So this is the networking, the matchmaking. Jack, do you want to start with that one? We can hear you. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I think it's, it's extremely important, but what you need is, is people inside organizations, inside universities, inside funding organizations who have um, knowledge and and i would almost say feeling for art humanities and social sciences i saw another uh, 
uh, remark in the chat room about uh, different methods between STEM and and A, uh, art humanities and social sciences that they might be perceived by people as, as inferior to the STEM methods. Uh, don't get me started on that because that's going to be a very <laughs> complex uh, discussion. But um, it is important that, that we break through uh, uh, ideas that have long existed about uh, uh, the arts, humanities and social sciences. It's true that they, they often uh, don't offer direct practical solutions, although we learn in the uh, pandemic uh, uh, area that, that they can certainly offer uh, practical solutions for how people should behave. But overall, uh, there is still a tendency in funding organizations, in ministries, in uh, even in the, uh, at the European level, although they do a lot for transdisciplinary research and, and interdisciplinary research, uh, to see arts and humanities and social sciences as something that you can use at the end when, when the STEM uh, researchers have done their important work and then we have to somehow sell it to the public or, or address some ethical questions. And I think it's important that we have people in, in organizations that can really help us to break through these uh, ideas. Thank you very much. Jennifer, I suspect, yeah, please. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and this, this really goes back, I think also to the, the, the last question, which, which Mary answered so well. To the, and and this, this really, for me, is at the heart of interdisciplinarity. And the, one of the reasons why I'm not convinced that just sharing data amongst disciplines can actually bring the kinds of interdisciplinary insight that we need, because my own experience is that when I found myself at a point in my career when I wanted to reach out across the, across the barrier or kind of move across the cricket pitch, as we say in Trinity, we have a big cricket pitch between the science end and the culture end, um, I had to learn almost... I had to sort of learn how that discipline talks. I had to learn how that discipline thinks. I had to learn what that discipline's values were. I had to learn what success meant. I had to learn a whole new vocabulary and a whole new way of thinking about um, what, what would come out of research, what would come out of working together. And I think only through that process was I then able to approach people who might be collaborators in a way that they would find um, would make sense because again, oftentimes when we're reaching across these dis disciplinary or even sectoral silos, we have to find a way to make that convergence. And unfortunately, that extra work is down to the person who wants to make the reach. So I would say, if you're looking for a way to reach out, you need to kind of pretend you are that person and find out what, they're, what they talk about, how they talk about it, what words mean for them, what they value, what they think success is, what they think knowledge is, once you have a handle on that, then you can make an approach that actually will usually be embraced. But it is, it is a matter of going three quarters of the way across the bridge before you can go all the way across. Yeah. Would, would you know, Jennifer, obviously we do a lot of this in Trinity and I'm very conscious some of our collaborators. So I work very closely with people in computer science, technology, engineering, but also with our colleagues in neurohumanities. Um, and the reality is, to begin with, we don't speak the same language yeah. and it does take time to yeah. really and, you, and the effort and you, you, you can't be um, uh, too afraid to go out of that comfort zone and potentially look like an idiot. And now that's always hard for academics to, to say, OK, listen, I have to display my ignorance about genetics or, or neurohumanities uh, uh, in order to move forward. Yeah, but it should, should be a two way street. I mean, absolutely. The should also have the same interest in art, humanities and social sciences. 
And to be oh. fair, Jack, the colleagues I'm talking about here are absolutely, we're meeting, it's like a, it's coming together and, and, and they're equally open. Uh, yeah. Sorry, Jennifer, go ahead. No, and I would just say, I mean, with some colleagues in some contexts, you will be blessed with that meeting at the middle of the bridge. Yeah. But I, I find that if you are finding yourself saying, I really want to work with this kind of person, I don't know where to find them, I don't know where to look for them, that's where you actually, sometimes your initial response may not get anything back. And that might be just because you need to go three quarters of the way over before you can get that response. Obviously, that's not the idea. And we're very blessed in Trinity with people who think that way. But I've recognized that sometimes I have to bone up and I have to say, okay, I think it's like this, because you're absolutely right, Jane. Oftentimes, you know, we, we try and view our discipline or our expertise as this sort of polished sphere that is perfect and, you know, that has these, these hard edges. We got to think about it as Velcro and sticky with holes and doors and windows, because that's really where, where knowledge can be different and can expand and to kind of take on these different directions. Um, and it's really exciting, but as you say, it's also really scary. Um, listen, I want to take a question from Deirdre Cabin, uh, uh, who is in the Zoom room, I hope. Deirdre, why don't you ask your own question? And we're tr trying to get as many as possible. So if you, it's quite a long one, if you can ask it very concisely. Okay, uh, thanks Jane, uh, Deirdre here. Uh, so I think the, the question that we really have is sometimes around how to start the dialogue, because very often we're focusing on, you know, a call deadline such as the Green Deal topics, for example, are going to close in December 2020. It's, you know, now July. So have we enough time to actually have these meaningful dialogues? I'm wondering between our STEM and our arts, humanities and social sciences researchers. I'm thinking of um, topics like uh, Horizon Prize style topics where you need, you need both an arts and humanities and a, and a STEM approach. And uh, it's very interesting what you're saying about two, speaking two different languages, because I think to get those, to get everybody speaking across a common, a com to a common purpose, it needs to be a long-term relationship and you know the way universities are quite siloed in their their disciplines um how do, how do we get people to actually talk together far enough in advance of the deadline yeah do you know what Deirdre? that's so important i'm gonna let the panel think about that but mani ramaswamy who's also in the room who's a geneticist uh, head of our neuroscience institute i think wants to come in on a similar point um, and Manny, why don't you uh, uh, ask your question now or make your observation now, and then we'll go back to the panel. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess I, I, I like all the points that, uh, all the points that were made. So, I mean, so one, so one observation is that, I mean, it's, is that the business of being siloed and being slightly scared by interdis or not having the time for interdisciplinary work is not only a problem of STEM people, mm -hmm. it's also a problem of people in the arts, humanities, and social sciences. And this particular room is, is probably uh, atypical of the average, of the average room. <clears throat> so um, I, the, that's one issue. The other is, I mean, I think it would be wonderful to have, I think it was, um, it was Mary who said that you want to reward behaviors that you consider to be, that you consider to be desirable. So, and if a university were to, for instance, act and say, we like interdisciplinarity, then there should be some reward structures that follow, which is that departments and schools and institutes should all be involved in interdisciplinarity. Promotions should say, what have you done towards interdisciplinarity? And that would be something that you just, 
which follows right away. I think that there is, I think that everybody is lobbying. And these days, you know, lobbying has got to the point where it's awful. And I hesitate myself to lobby for things that are obviously to my own personal benefit. So I kind of feel like if we, if we look at education, I think everybody will agree and most of the students will agree as well. So instead of a civil society, if you have students who say, look, we really want to be exposed to things outside our immediate discipline. And I suspect there will be a majority of students who would like that. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I'm going to cut you off there just to keep it moving a little bit. Um, I, I, I mean, you've made a number of very important points there. Unless there's just something you wanted to say, just very, very crisply. Uh, I, I guess, I guess, very crisply, I would suggest that I would suggest that if we had a course, for instance, such as, um, you know, what, what has the, what, what have the consequences been of tech people going ahead without understanding the impact on society of what they're doing. I mean, that would be awfully useful, for instance, uh, but I'll stop. Okay. Thank you, thank you, Manny. Um, thank you very much. Um, I don't know, Jack, do you want to respond to Deirdre and, and Manny's um, observations? And I think maybe the whole panel has got something to say here. Well, I think I'm gonna contradict myself. I just <laughs> said lobbying was maybe not the right word, but I had to think of some colleagues in Utrecht University and the time they spent to lobby for Art, humanities, and social sciences, and and also for other fields in Brussels to to uh, attune the 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 things that they are important that they find important in Brussels and and the things that they are developing in Utrecht University, and it really takes time, and you really need people who are prepared to do that or uh, that the universities find so valuable that they give them time to to do that. So yes, uh, we do, we do need people to lobby, and it does take a long time because uh, we are in a in a very traditional system although we see things uh, changing for the better but it's still a very very traditional system where the art humanities and social sciences although they have the most students overall but they don't have a good position in in research uh, so i think uh, lobbying is is necessary but it's also necessary to develop uh, longer term structures mm. Jennifer, Mary? Yeah, I'll, I'll come in, Jane, if that's okay. Um, I, 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 I have to comment though, uh, Manny, that course you're talking about, about uh, technology needing, needing um, culture and what happens when things go wrong. We actually have a course starting in the spring for undergraduates, which is kind of a digital humanities course, but also one that's actually talking about, quote, thinking digitally and culturally, i.e. how how do these things have, have, have stresses in themselves? And it's exactly the experiment we're trying to do. I'll let you know how it works out. But going back to Deirdre's question, which I think is a really important one, which is, I mean, we're always feeling like we're drinking from the fire hose. It's the next call, it's the next thing. Um, but I think one of the things that the, the, the missions approach um, that we know is coming in Horizon Europe is going to make us do is actually to take a longer term approach and look at kind of the big questions. And that for me has been a real challenge to say, well, if we're looking across big questions, how can we how can we line up this kind of conversation, exactly the kind of conversation I was talking about? And I think what we need is a mechanism by which some of what we might call the scholarly primitives, you know, some of the, the basic areas of how the arts, humanities, the social sciences, what we can see um, and what we're experts in, in, in finding um, and to give a kind of a, a starting point for 
um, places like Amber to really yeah. start and, and say, okay, well, actually, this could be an interesting way to lead the conversation. And some of the ones that I would think would be, you know, we have expertise in things like discourse, metaphors, how people talk tells us a huge amount about how they're going to react, how they think. Popular and artistic images, same thing. Historical moments, you know, it's been great in the COVID time to see how um, the pandemic of 1918, how the response to the polio vaccine have become part of the popular conversation. We can help uncover these sorts of, of evidence, things around symbols, values, and practices. So if we just take a topic like Green Deal, let's bring together people working in material science, people working in nanoscience, people working in, in, in ICT connectivity, and people who are working in discourse, metaphors, historical moments, artistic representations. Let's start at that big level and see if we can bring a conversation together. If you want to work on that, Deirdre, drop me an email. Let's do it. Great. That's what I love about Jennifer. <laughs> Let's not just talk about it. Let's do it. Another doer. Mary, any thoughts? Yeah, yes, I do. And I'm, but I am conscious of time. We're gonna finish it. Don't worry. We've got another five or six minutes and then we'll start to wrap things up. Okay, so, so I, I worked for most of my working life in a, a tall hierarchy, a political hierarchy. So it's been very uh, instructive to come to the community in Trinity and see how that works. Uh, so a number of things strike me, and, and this is a more general, this is general, more, it's not just Trinity related. But so what I, what I see though generally in the university system is that the policy connect has been a somewhat of a Cinderella in the university space. It hasn't been uh, within the, uh, the leadership in the universities. It hasn't been recognized, I think, or supported in the way that it has a potential. And there are lots of reasons for this, but not least of which it's a potential source of soft power, which goes to something Jack said earlier. So you need to think very, very strategically and very cleverly about what you do in the university space, how you do it and who you do it with. The second thing that has struck me is that power is very distributed in the organization in, in sharp contrast to the one that I worked in where the government made the decisions ultimately and you had a very clear set, you know, template for getting decisions made. So my question back, I think, uh, is if you're serious about doing this, how do you reorganize a, an institution which is based very much still on disciplinary lines to actually do the sort of things that Jennifer, Deirdre and others have been talking about. And in case I don't get a chance to come in again, uh, one final piece of advice from the world of policymaker is, you have to crystallize the asks. This is my mantra. So when people are looking for something from another system, they have to be clear of what they're looking for. It may, may take time to get there. And they also have to know of whom to ask it. Yeah. So I think there's a big struggle within the existing uh, structure and management and governance work arrangements in the university system, which actually is gonna have to be worked through in order to get uh, an answer to some of those big questions. And that's, a, I mean, that's a huge piece of work, Mary, but absolutely. Um, Mairead Hurley, who's in our science gallery here, she's saying, I'm wondering if Shape ID or any panelists can recommend a good resource to early career researchers to learn about policy making, lobbying, etc. And Mairead, listen, that's obviously something that we are thinking about in the context of Shape ID. And I know Mary is also thinking about that in the context of the work that she's doing in the hub. So we can have a conversation I think in a tr Trinity specific context about that, but it's interesting people are asking for it because I actually think 
this is signaling there's a culture change out there and we need to build on that and the training is so important. Um, I want to turn though, go back to so there's two more questions we're going to try and fit in very quickly. One is around a, a lobbying point that Catherine Lyle, um, who is part of the Shape ID uh, team has made. And Catherine, I know you're in the room. Maybe could you just simply share the point that you're making yourself? Uh, if not, I can do it, but it'd be lovely to hear from you. Hello, Jane, hope you can hear me okay. This is Catherine from Edinburgh. Um, recently, I've been reading in the UK press about a new campaign uh, that's been launched to highlight the role of the arts, humanities and social sciences. Interestingly, it's called SHAPE. Uh, no overlap with, our, or no intended overlap with our own project. Um, but the idea behind this new acronym is that it should allow these disciplines uh, to cluster together to gain greater public status and to challenge the predominance of STEM. We're all very familiar with this STEM acronym. Um, so I just wondered how the, uh, the panellists responded to the news of this campaign, which is being led, I think, by the British Academy and the Arts Council. Well, I'll ask the panel. I found out about it actually only yesterday. Mary and I were on a call uh, with, uh, and, and, and we learned about it. Um, I don't know if Jennifer or, or, or Jack or, or, or Mary, it's obviously very important, although the name uh, we should have copyrighted. I know, anyway, I'm joking. <laughs> I, I don't know if Jennifer or Jack, have you heard much about it or want to comment? No, Jack? Haven't heard about it. It sounds like a great idea. Curious what uh, will happen. Yeah, well, and I love the fact it is shape. I think it's, 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 it's very good for us, but I think um, we'll come back to that one. I want to finish up uh, with a question from uh, Nina Brown. N Nina, um, you're the project coordinator of Net for Society, uh, a network of national contact points for Societal Challenge 6. You're, I think you're in the room. Do you want to ask this final question yourself? So I don't know, Nina, if you want to unmute or if not, I'll ask the question. Can you hear me? Because I have internet problems here. So, but my question was uh, because Jennifer and Jack, uh, they said that it would be necessary for a lot of STEM projects that the, H, uh, the AHSS community would take the lead in the project. And I was wondering because um, how how would the topic needs, would need to be formulated in order to be able to address uh, researchers from this community to actually apply and go for this topic because really often that's not what we see. They are not even looking in the other areas that would maybe be relevant for them. That's a great question, Nina. Thank you very much. So first to Jennifer, then to Jack, but Mary, feel free to come in here as well. Please, Jennifer. Yeah, and I mean, again, I mentioned the, the KPLEX project and what was really exciting about the way that call was framed is that it was, they, they framed it as what was called a sister project. So essentially what it was is, was this is a call for SSH researchers, but you need to find another call somewhere else in our ecosystem. So in the kind of the ICT calls is ecosystem and do something that is complementary. So it was really very much a sense that we had freedom but we also had a sense that we had to tie into something else. So what we did in that case was we said, okay, we want to be tied into the big data PPP. And what we want to do is we want to look at precisely some of these issues around discourse, around values, around hierarchies, around accessibility, and say, okay, so can we actually provide a different kind of, of, of perspective on unconscious biases that may be shaping big data research? Um, and it really was, you know, we were a part of the Big Data Value Association, and you know, many of the experiences we had in that were not good. 
Um, you know, many of the, the hierarchies were still there and we still got pushed, but within our own project, we had control over that. And so it gave us space to actually say, right, this is how we create knowledge. This is what we can show. This is where we think it's ap applicable. And this is the limit of our, of our control. So that would be the kind of call and a model that for me personally, I thought was incredibly effective. Thank you, Jennifer. Jack. I don't think I have much to add. I think we need more people like Jennifer to, to uh, accomplish this. <laughs> and people like Mary in the, in the, on the policy side. Uh, I mean, we, we have to, to fight a, a difficult fight because uh, I'm not saying that this is the case, but it is often perceived that the STEM fields uh, will bring uh, solutions for problems and that the arts, humanities and social sciences create problems. But the thing is, of course, that we might address problems uh, that in the long run will help society more than what comes out of the STEM fields. But maybe I'm going too far now. I was going to say, there are friends, Jack. Sometimes the scientists are the most passionate advocates for the arts and humanities. And sure, sure, sure. Mary. Well, just to say that, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, how the questions are framed initially is vital. It's really important. And AHSS needs to get itself into the room, however it does that. Yeah. Well, do you know, I want to give a shout out actually to a call the Irish Research Council uh, runs to really promote interdisciplinarity, where they invite an interdisciplinary project, but it has to be led by somebody from the AHS community to build confidence and competence. Uh, uh, so again, you know, I think more funding councils could do that because sometimes actually it's it's a confidence thing. I also want to give a shout out uh, again, maybe it's re reflecting uh, the relationship that colleagues and Trinity have. We've just been successful in getting a big um, uh, Marie Curie co-fund, a really slightly different um, program um, that has been led by the arts and humanities in partnership with our technology centre, the ADAPT centre in, in Trinity. Now, it, 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 but we, the AH uh, part is the lead part, and, and I, I was deeply encouraged by that, um, and it was ranked very highly as well. So maybe the mood mu music is starting to change at, at all levels. I'm very conscious that we're out of time, folks. It's been an absolutely fantastic conversation. And before we thank our three uh, fabulous panelists, I just want to two very quick announcements. Um, the Shape ID results, the reports on our survey and literature review and our new policy brief are all available on our website. We would love you to uh, join, uh, obviously sh uh, sign up for uh, uh, our mailing list and follow us on, on Twitter. Um, so please do that on the foot of this. We will be uh, sending out a survey, plus we will be sending out all of the wonderful information that's in the chat. And it's lovely to see these conversations going on in the chat function. And I'm just sorry, we can't come to all of the cracking questions. So um, I'd like to thank uh, Darren Wallace, who's the project manager uh, for Shape ID for organizing the webinar. She always does a fabulous job. Uh, our wider Shape ID uh, uh, team, as I say, we're planning more webinars for the autumn, so we'll be sure to uh, share the details of that when the moment comes. I'd also like to thank Francesca, Aoife, and the whole team at the Trinity Long Room Hub for the support they give us in uh, running these uh, webinars uh, so effectively. Uh, so very grateful to the whole team in the Hub. And last but not least, uh, uh, I'd like to thank you, our audience, for coming and for staying, for your great questions. And I'm gonna invite you to join me in thanking our phenomenal panel for uh, their uh, uh, just wonderful presentations. And we're gonna do that in the customary way. So wherever you are in your kitchens, your living rooms, your 
porches, uh, uh, please uh, join your hands. Uh, uh, and Thank our great panel. Goodbye, everybody, and thank you for being with us today. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Taimonia Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.